Well, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Brad is not going to leave me his coffee. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Well, it's my privilege, first of all, to be, be before you and to preach uh, God's Word. Our title and focus this evening is The Word of the Cross. And let me just open in prayer once again. Heavenly Father, uh, may you be glorified tonight by the preaching of your word, by the worship service as a whole. Uh, bring understanding to us, Lord. Teach us. And we pray in your Son's precious name. Amen. Well, 1 Corinthians, chapters. One through four, something of a united whole, and of course the whole, the whole book is united in a united whole, but there's something to these first four chapters that really hang together. And in it, Paul addresses church factions and strife and divisions in the church of Corinth. And he does so prior to getting into the specific sins that we, we might read in uh, later chapters, sins of, of uh, sexual sins, for example, and dealing with issues of marriage and food offered to idols. Here he's dr addressing in these four chapters, again, division and strife in the church. And let's look at that quickly, uh, both in chapter 1 and chapter 3. So look at uh, chapter 1, verse 10. Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be not, you excuse me, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And then turn to chapter three, verse three. Again, continuing, Paul writes, "For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh?" And so by means of an introduction this evening, we will examine this division and strife. And uh, we're, we're doing so, we're attempting to do so, to sort of set in context this idea of the word of the cross, that phrase, the word of the cross. In verse 11 of chapter 1, and really all of chapter 3, if you uh, want to reflect on this later, we learn that some in Corinth claim to follow Paul. Some claim to follow Apollos, some Cephas or, or Peter, and some Christ. And really then, in short, the, the Christians were in Corinth were dividing over, um, over different teachers, weren't they? They were uh, dividing over teachings of men uh, rather than uniting around the teaching of Christ, rather than uniting upon the foundation that was already laid, or as Paul says, in 1 Corinthians 3, the foundation which was already laid, which is Christ. And as I, as I read through 1 Corinthians, as I know you have, uh, we can all imagine many conflicts and disagreements they may have had, many arguments they may have had in Corinth, many po positions and perspectives that each group would have held to. But Paul focuses in on the one issue that really strikes, it seems to me, at the heart of the gospel. 
So rather than submitting to and boasting in the Lord, each faction was uh, resting on their own worldly wisdom and taking pride in boasting in their teacher of choice. So they seem to be picking and choosing and really defending the servant who plants and waters rather than the Lord Jesus Christ who gives the growth. Let's look a little more closely at, at what kind of division and what, we, what, what uh, Paul means here by, by the, even the word division. So look here in verse 10, that word there, division. It's from a Greek word that, that means a tear in a garment. Uh, compare that to Mark 2.21 where Jesus says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. And so this, this idea of tearing, this division is a tearing in Greek. And, and they're really the same word. It's a tearing or ripping apart. So the divisions in Corinth really gashed and ripped at the unity of which Paul was, was hoping that they would have, the unity and fellowship of the church. And then look at verse 11, this word quarreling. The word quarreling there is a word that means strife or rivalry. It's the same word that we find in Galatians 5.20, uh, and it's uh, one of the many long lists of the works of the flesh. And so Paul is addressing a tearing or a ripping apart of the church of Corinth, and at the root of that division, there's rivalry and strife. And in fact, let's turn again to chapter 3. In fact, listen to Paul. He is direct, and he doesn't mince words. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, that they are not spiritual people, but people of the flesh. I imagine your pastor coming to you and uh, saying that to you directly. Like, this, is, this is a strong word. You are people of the flesh. He calls them again in verse 1, infants in Christ. And he says in verse 3 that they're behaving only in a human way. And then in verse 4, they're just merely human. He doesn't, as I said, mince words, and he admonishes them. He admonishes them for their factionalism and their quarrelsome spirit. But Paul, as is, as is, as is the way that Paul does and, and the way that we should, he doesn't just admonish, but he exhorts them and he encourages them. On the, on the positive side of it, he calls for a oneness of mind and a oneness in their judgment. And he calls for that same oneness or unity in, in Philippians 1. And here's, here's a verse that's familiar to you. Paul writes in Philippians 1, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And that phrase there at the end, for the faith of the gospel, is very critical he doesn't say unity no matter what. He says unity, the church's unity is necessarily subject to a unity around or in the faith of the gospel. You know, Paul writes nine New Testament epistles uh, uh, to churches, right? letters to churches. He writes other uh, epistles to, to people, but to churches, he writes nine. There are seven churches we know that are referenced in Revelation. And there are tens of thousands of churches today, and hundreds even in our own city. And it's no doubt that the will of God is for there to be unity in the church. 
But it's not men's talk or men's wisdom or men's judgment that every church should unify around. But it's God's message. It's God's power that is in God's message. It's the message of the cross. And so we might turn to 4 and 20, chapter 4 and 20, which really sums up this gospel unity, this whole uh, pericope, you might call it, of these first four chapters. Oh, it's a long one, Sid, four chapters worth. Where it's Paul's gospel unity message, and he sums it up this way. He says, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. And that power is through the Holy Spirit, and the power is in the message of the gospel. So in this context of division and strife in the church, we come to verse 18, and I'm going to read 18 through 25 with you. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Amen. That's God's holy word. So that phrase, the word of the cross, or the, some translations might be the preaching of the cross, or the message of the cross. That's what we want to dig into this evening. But let's take one step back to verse 17. Notice that Paul doesn't come to Corinth with mighty words and a suit and tie. Uh, He comes not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the, the cross be emptied of its power. He did not come with eloquent words or, uh, in fact, what he came with was a simple and direct message. It was the direct message of the good news. And in fact, that's all Paul needed. And, and let me simply put, simply just give a definition that I've heard uh, stated really to children, and I, and I still have uh, taken it and accepted it as my own. But the gospel, children and adults, is the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus for our salvation. There'd be a good, a good summary and starting point. The message of the cross is a shorthand way of saying that we preach Christ crucified. It's a way of saying that the way to eternal life is through Jesus Christ alone. Because of what Christ has done for us, because we could not do it ourselves. Again and again, Paul points his readers, not only in Corinthians, but every letter. In fact, every letter of the, of the New Testament Uh, you'll find this. But Paul points his readers to the word of the cross again and again. Look at chapter 1, verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. 
or chapter 2, verse 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Or let's take the epistle to the Galatians. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. That's chapter 2, verse 20. And then again, and lastly, in chapter 6, verse 14, but far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. This was Paul's message. And it was Paul's message because it was God's message. And, and it's our message, in fact. You know, the cross is the central aspect of the gospel. And I want to get to that this evening. What, what do we mean by the gospel? Let's look at it uh, very specifically, as Paul does here, and let's look at it very broadly, as we find elsewhere in the New Testament. But the cross is the central aspect. It's the pinnacle. It's the, it's the shining and glorious and sheer wisdom of God. What happened at the cross? Well, at the cross, the one true God paid the penalty for our sins. The one true God who knew no sin and became our substitute and atoned for our sin. At the cross, God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. As we see in these verses, the gospel is in one sense very narrow or specific. It, it is specifically referring to Jesus' death for all who believe. But in another sense, the gospel is all-encompassing of all redemption. It's, God, it's God's grand story, including our sanctification. And I want to take each of these ideas one at a time so as to be abundantly clear and to lead us to the next point. First, we'll start with the second one. First, it's all-encompassing. It's, it's all-encompassing, as I said, of, of all of the redemptive history that we read in the Bible. It's also about the kind and quality of life that we live and that we've been called to in Jesus Christ. Aren't we to pick up our cross? Aren't we to die to self? Aren't we to renounce all for the sake of Christ? Listen to, listen to Jesus' preaching on, on this price, on this cost of discipleship. He says, uh, or the, the, um, the gospel writer writes, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he, and he turned to them and said, and this is Jesus, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then he finishes a few verses later in 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And I want to say to you that the gospel does not stop at repent and believe. It will require that you renounce all. So in this sense, the gospel is all-encompassing even of our sanctification. The gospel is that God is renewing all, restoring this world. And that includes your life, and your life should reflect this newness. But second, and, and more explicitly, and more often we see this in the New Testament, the Bible hones in very, very narrowly to, to what the gospel is. 
it is, it is specific, first of all, let me say this, it's specific because, first of all, it's historic. The Bible often refers to the event, the event of the cross that the writers refer to so frequently in the New Testament. But the message of the cross is not just history. It's not just a, a, a man from Galilee died. The Bible and the, and the gospel is, doc, the, the gospel includes doctrine. It's Jesus died on a cross, but it, he died on a cross for our sins. Michael Horton puts this idea this way. He writes, the message is not just a story that makes a point. The elements in Scripture from creation to the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, or uh, <clears throat> yes, to the life, death, or resurrection of Jesus, the, the, the nation of Israel and their story, they don't just conceptualize a deeper truth. They don't just make a point. They are the point. The gospel is the point. And the crux of, of God's grand story is that the Son of God died as a substitute for the sins of His people. The gospel is the point, and the point is a power-filled message. Charles Spurgeon tells of a story as he was walking to the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London <clears throat> on the morning that he was going to go preach, and a drunkard comes to him and says, I'm one of your converts. And Spurgeon responds like uh, only uh, someone from London could. He says, I well believe it. For if you were one of Christ, you wouldn't be drunk and in the gutter. That's good just because he says, I well believe it. Listen, unleashing the Word of God in the message of the cross is unleashing the power of God. That's what we're called to do. That's what Paul's addressing here. The message of the cross. It's, it's in the message of the cross. It's in the gospel where we find the power of God to transform the natural man the sinful man, the unbelieving man, the dead man, to transform that dead man into a living ambassador of Christ who then will continue to draw on the living water that he finds in Holy Scripture. So, I'll ask this again, but why then would we preach any other message than the message of the cross? Why would a church find itself in the position to not want to preach the gospel. It's the gospel. It's, it's the message of the cross, the only message that brings dead men to life and then those reborn men into eternity. The only message that can do that. And so all of this so far, I think we hear with not too much trouble. I think we get a lot of reformed head shakes. And let me recap what we've covered. This is what we've said. We've said the gospel is our message. We've said the gospel is all-encompassing of God's work in redemptive history. It's true. We find references to this broad scope of things in the New Testament. But there's no doubt that here in 118 and most elsewhere, it's really centrally focused on the cross work of Christ. For at the cross, we get the central Christian truth of substitution. And then to tie that into the division and strife in the church, we've said that to limit that division and strife in the church is to magnify and emphasize the gospel. Perhaps there's an indirect correlation. Uh, to limit the division and strife in the church is to magnify and emphasize the gospel 
in all of church life and to promote unity. But Paul tells us more than this. He tells us that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's folly. Here and through the, the, the rest of chapter 2, Paul describes two classes of people, and there's only two, those who are perishing and those who are being saved. So I have half-jokingly said in the past that there are two people groups in the world, the ain'ts and the saints, and that's true. There are those actively perishing and are at enmity with God, and then there are those who are redeemed of God. There are those on the wide road that leads to destruction and then those on the narrow road that leads to the celestial city. There is clay made of vessels of uh, are made as vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and there is clay made as vessels of mercy prepared for glory. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. Two classes of people we find in scripture. That gets us to the confession we read earlier on original sin, doesn't it? The gospel message is simply folly, Paul tells us here and elsewhere, to those who are perishing. And that word perishing there has this idea of a continuing action. They are perishing, they will perish. They are separated now and they will be separated forever. But unlike those who are perishing, the word of the cross is the power of God to us who are being saved. So why is this? Why is the preaching of the cross, of the cross, the wisdom of God to some, and the utter foolishness to others? And we'll look at verse 21 and 24 to answer that question. So look at uh, verse 21. Paul writes, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So God uses the preaching of the cross, the message of the cross, the word of the cross to save those who believe. And then, who, so, so who are those who believe? Read verse 24 with me. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Those that believe are those that are called. And you might ask, well, who are those that are called? And the answer is, those that believe. You see, brothers and sisters, God effectually calls those on whom He, chose, he chooses to show mercy. And God uses the simple gospel from the lips of simple people like us. But that unleashes His power to transform dead men to living men. Or put it to, uh, let's put it as, as Paul does. Uh, simple believers give a simple message like this. We preach Christ crucified. To those who are not effectually called, it's a stumbling block or it's folly or it's both. To all those who seek human wisdom or signs or science or politics or man-made laws, the cross is foolishness, isn't it? The cross is mocked and ridiculed. It's barbaric. It's out of touch with modernity. Or maybe, maybe you've heard this. Maybe they say that a, a Galilean prophet on a cross is just an allegory. 
It's just, it, Christ is just an example we should follow, and really social justice is our saving grace. But on the other hand, those that are effectually called and then that repent and believe, they find the message of Christ crucified full of power and wisdom. It's the same power that we find in Romans 1.16, where Paul writes, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. You want to see someone saved, give them the gospel, and then let God do the rest. So I ask the question again, why then would the local church offer those people who appear to be perishing? Why would we offer anything other than the message of the cross? When it's the message of the cross that is the only thing that can save sinners. Now let me bring this home in, in, in a, maybe a more difficult way, a complicated way. I'll try to make it as simple as possible, though. But let me ask it like this. Why would the church alter the message? Or why would the church soften the message? Or, or why would the church, and here's the difficult part, why would the church harden the message? It's possible, I think, to alter the message or soften the message or harden the message. So we'll take these three things in order, <clears throat> perhaps easiest to the most difficult. So first, Reformed Christians understand what it means to alter the message of the cross. Uh, here's what it is. It's to, it's to make Christ on the cross an example only, or it's to twist and manipulate the message so that the power is in a man, and it's not in the, in the message. It's not in God. It's in man. For example, it's to deny that the atonement is an atonement where the wrath of God is satisfied. It's to really dethrone God and enthrone the wisdom of men. It, at bottom, it's a message that it's entirely merit-based, and it takes God off His throne and puts man on the throne. That's what I mean by alter the message. What about soften the message? I think Reformed Christians also understand what it means to soften the message of the cross. It's not to deny God's wrath, but it is to stop speaking of it. It's to stop emphasizing it. It's to not talk about it so much. It's to politely pass those few passages behind the pulpit. It's to rework the biblical view of the church and the biblical view of worship. Here's another way it happens. To put, present a more friendly, more modern message. As in verse 17, it's emphasizing eloquent wisdom over the simple gospel proclamation. So, it, so in this case, it doesn't take God off His throne so much, but it sits man at the throne next to Jesus. Let me tell you how, how this works, partner. I think we understand that. But thirdly, Reformed Christians might have a more difficult time understanding what it means to harden the message of the cross. So I need, to, I need to draw this out a little bit because <clears throat> I, I don't want to um, miss, misspeak or be confusing in any way. And I'm going to do so by quoting a prominent teacher. I'm going to give his gospel definition, okay? his two-part definition. This prominent modern teacher says this. This is the gospel. The gospel is the proclamation of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the sins of His people and his exaltation at the right hand of God the Father. And he adds that the gospel is God remaking humanity 
restoring the image of God, and Christ is that image of God that we are being restored to. So note first that that first uh, gospel definition is that what I was describing as the central aspect of the gospel. It centers around the cross. I think it's Paul's focus here in 1 Corinthians 1. It's the message of the cross. It's what Christ did on the cross. It's His cross work that we're getting to. But the second sentence that, that the teacher added is also inclusive of the gospel. That God is working in and through the believer, conforming the believer more and more into the image of Christ. And the Holy Spirit enables the believer then to perform good works. So, when the, so okay, you have that uh, framework. When the gospel then is hardened, what I'm suggesting then is we neuter the whole gospel by clipping off sanctification. We just look to what He's done, and that's what we ought to look to first and ought to go back daily to look to. But He doesn't stop there in our lives, does He? Let me say that again, that when the gospel is hardened, we neuter the whole gospel by clipping off sanctification. So in this regard, it doesn't take God off the throne so much. It doesn't put the man on the throne next to Jesus so much, but it certainly does puff us up with pride. The hardening of the gospel happens in a local church when that church enshrines justification, which is, which is good, and it must be justified by faith, but it minimizes consecration. It minimizes what He's doing in us, in our sanctification, and what we're to offer to Him. The hardening of the gospel also occurs when antinomianism reigns and offers to suggest that good works aren't even necessary. But I think contrary to this, the confession calls us to do what? To adorn the profession of the gospel. That's really beautiful language. We're to adorn the profession of the gospel. And how do we do this? Well, of course, as I said earlier, it's through the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and uh, believers will gradually remove the remaining pollution, not perfectly and not entirely. They'll also gradually develop our new life in Christ. In other words, we'll put on and we'll put off. Or to return to Paul's phrase in Philippians, we'll, we'll let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So let's conclude. I'd like to say to you, and, and together maybe we should say, may our unity be rooted in the gospel. May our message be the message of the cross. May our life and our church be consumed with Christ's work 2,000 years ago, but also the ongoing work of the Spirit today in our life. Grace Clovis, we want Christ and Him crucified. And we want more and more of Christ transforming our life. We want the true gospel. We want the whole gospel. We must not harden or soften or alter the message of the cross, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. May God get all the glory for opening our hearts and making the message of Christ crucified wisdom and power 
to us who believe. Amen? Let me close us in prayer. Holy